Welcome to a special bonus episode of Law Review Squared, the Law Review Review. It is Tuesday, March 16th, 2021. I'm Tony Fernando with members of our regular panel, Seth, Joanne, and Courtney. We're joined today by a special guest, Michael Smith, a practicing attorney with Glazer Weil, who specializes in commercial litigation. He previously worked for the Orange County District Attorney's Office and graduated law school from UCLA. Welcome, Michael. Hi, thank you uh, for having me on. It's, a, it's an honor. We usually start with an icebreaker question. If you could have any special ability, it does not have to be a superpower, what would it be? Let's start with Joanne. I would choose the ability to learn and be able to fluently speak and read any language. Nice choice. Courtney? I don't necessarily need to control all of time. I just wish that I could stop and start it whenever I need a nap. Good choice. Seth? I'd love to be able to download information into my brain. I think that'd be great. Michael? I'm sort of split between teleporting, which I used to want to do before, back when I had to commute before the, the pandemic, uh, but maybe also just not having to sleep uh, and being able to, to be productive at all hours of the day. And these days, uh, that's maybe the preference. Good choice. I was going to choose stop time also, mostly so I would have t- more time to do research. <laughs> um, you well, can just surprise. download everything in your brain and then you don't need the time. And then you don't need the time, yeah. While supplies last, you can still get a, a free Law Review Squared sticker by sending your mailing address to lexclava at gmail.com. That's L-E-X-C-L-A-V-A at gmail.com. We'll ship anywhere, even if you're overseas. And a reminder that opinions here are those of the panelists and do not represent the view of Penn State Dickinson Law, panelists, present, former, future employers, or any other entity. Contents of this recording do not constitute legal advice. The article we're discussing today for an episode that we're going to release on April 1st is entitled Shooting Fish, and it is literally about shooting fish with firearms and the regulations of the 50 states which govern that activity. So, Michael, for any listeners who may be more concerned with shooting fish than regulatory considerations, in general, can I head down to the river and shoot a fish, and are there exceptions to that? Um, Before I get into that answer, um, I again want to thank you for having me on. I'll also uh, point out uh, that the opinions I state here and in my article also don't reflect uh, the opinions of my uh, current employer or my clients. Uh, I'm also unfortunately not able to discuss any of my pending cases. This is particularly regrettable as about two dozen of them involve shooting fish with firearms. Uh, actually, that's not true. Uh, that, that's, that's a complete lie. Um, as for your question, though, can you head on down to the river and shoot a fish? Generally, no. Almost always, in fact, no. Um, although it depends on a few things. First of all, I mean, what are you going to shoot the fish with? Uh, if you're going to shoot it with a firearm, as is the topic of our discussion today, yeah, probably not in most cases. But if you're going to shoot it with an arrow, a spear, a harpoon, a sling bow, or something like that, there's a few laws that let you do that um, in several states, in certain circumstances for certain fish at certain locations. So the answer is maybe more appropriately, maybe, depending on what you're going to shoot the fish with. If it is a firearm, though, there are a few exceptions, a few notable exceptions. As of this recording, you're not allowed to do it. But as of the time that this recording is going to be released, you will be allowed in Vermont, at Lake Champlain, to shoot fish with guns. There's a window from March 25th to May 25th there uh, where people are permitted to go down to the lake and shoot fish with uh, sort of any, any number of firearms. There's also a window from April 15th to May 31st uh, in the Clinch River in Scott County, Virginia unless it's Sunday, uh, where you can shoot fish with guns there as well. So while generally no, there are some exceptions. I feel like that was the most law school answer I've ever heard. And it basically says, it depends. 
Absolutely. So this article required a significant amount of work. Uh, you researched the regulations in all 50 states as well as additional sources. But for most lawyers or even fishermen, the issue must almost uh, never come up. So why, do you, why did you write this article in the first place? It was a combination of a few things. Uh, first, there's this excellent book by an attorney, Kevin Underhill, who practices in Northern California. It's called, uh, he, he runs a blog, Lowering the Bar, which is fantastic. Uh, he blogs about all sorts of ridiculous law-related happenings. He has certain themes of, quote, uh, official state crap, where he goes through uh, state's official everything, whether it's, you know, flower, fossil. I think he may have mentioned firearm. I, I do mention uh, one of the official state firearms in the article at some point. Uh, but he has a book called The Emergency Sasquatch Ordinance. And in that book, when he's going through a survey of strange state laws, he gets to Wyoming and mentions that it's uh, illegal to shoot a fish with a firearm in the waters of the state in Wyoming. And that combined with some prior experiences I had as a child coming from Iowa with a lot of family living in rural Northwest Iowa. I had some instances where I was up visiting them up on the farm and sort of out kind of in the middle of nowhere. And I'll admit that I have had firsthand witness of the practice of shooting fish with guns uh, from a fair distance. Uh, there was a stream near one of my family members' properties. Uh, there were carp getting into the water, and they decided that one of the best ways to try to get rid of them was to take out a 22 rifle and see if you could shoot as many as you could. So uh, I mentioned that, it, and I'll, I'll acknowledge that it's illegal to do that in Iowa. Um, but I'll go on to say that I don't think they hit any of them, at least not while I was there. And the statute of limitations is almost certainly expired. So uh, I don't think that I'm throwing anyone under the bus by by telling that story. But as a broader reason for writing this article and for doing a lot of research and sort of writing that I do, I kind of just do it for fun. I have an interest in legal trivia, the sort of writing that would be a great re resource for a cocktail party or something like that if you want to impress people with strange facts and knowledge. And that was a big motivator behind doing this. And ultimately, um, the reason why this article came into being, frankly, was because I had some sort of e-discovery assignment. I don't even remember really what it was. But I was stuck in the office. I had to oversee a transfer of an ungodly amount of files. I, I couldn't really do anything else. Um, I, I couldn't, you know, couldn't bill for it. I just sort of had to be there to make sure it was happening. And I needed an outlet to, to occupy my time. I wrote a five-page draft of this thing one evening while I was sitting in the office waiting for these files to copy. And it just grew from there. And then the other reason I sort of wrote about this topic in, in particular and why I write about some of these more esoteric and odd topics is that it doesn't overlap really with any of my current cases, despite uh, the, the, the fib that I told at the beginning. Uh, I don't have any clients that are involved in shooting fish with guns. And to an extent, that's a bit of a downside. If I'm writing about something that, you know, my clients aren't typically involved in, then that may not help us get, get business. And I do write some shorter pieces in sort of that field and other publications uh, usually, you know, more popular publications or popular legal publications. But for sort of fun, leisure writing like this, uh, choosing a topic that's completely out of left field means that I really don't have much of a risk that it's going to overlap with anything I'm doing. And I'm going to say something that ends up getting me in trouble in a case down the road. All of those sort of factors are what went into this article. And in the end, it was just so interesting sort of seeing the range of laws and the reasons for the laws that 
that sort of helped build the momentum and, and kept the thing going. Do you think that um, writing for pleasure almost, does that help your professional writing? I mean, as a lawyer, you do a lot of writing. So it does it spill over into practice then? I think that, um, that actually writing in both professionally and sort of academically uh, kind of have reinforcing effects on one another. Um, this, this research I did, you know, on my own time, and uh, I suppose actually there's a way of getting MCLE, MCLE credit for it, but I haven't really even looked into it. But uh, the research that I do on this sort of keeps me, keeps me sharp, keeps those skills going, and helps me in, uh, legal, in my legal writing. And kind of the legal writing and this writing are both, I think, opportunities to write for as generalist of an audience as possible. I mean, you think of stereotypical motions, and you can have, you know, you'll have certain forms that people rely on where it's like, you know, herein, whereas, yada, 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 that sort of thing. I mean, those aren't really effective motions. That not, that's not really effective legal writing. The best legal writing is, is honestly conversational, compelling, and could be convincing to someone whether or not they're a lawyer. And the same is true of academic legal writing. Uh, you have certain law review articles that you start reading them, your eyes glaze over, and you end up reading the same page five times, and you don't even know what it says. And that's really not good academic legal writing. The best academic legal writing that I've read is also conversational, informative, well-researched and supportive, but easy and interesting and sometimes fun to read. Uh, so I found that this article and sort of my writing both in practice and sort of in my own time, my, my, my academic writing, are both opportunities for me to try to hone that skill, make my writing more approachable, make it interesting and fun for the reader. Because in the end, both for academic writing and for legal writing, that's going to make it more effective. So I think that this does help my practice in the same way my practice informs and assists my, my academic writing. And to an extent, I guess there's sort of a, a bit of a divide, I think, between people in, like, in the legal academy and, say, practicing lawyers writing you know, highfalutin legal scholarship. And I think that sort of divide is a little bit misguided because I do think that some of the skills of compelling legal brief writing really can inform compelling academic legal writing. Same with research that you need to write a compelling legal brief. So I think that the um, my practice and my writing uh, reinforce each other. That was really well to what I think is kind of the central thesis of even this podcast is that you don't have to be a specialist in, in the subfield in order to read a, a, a legal a law review document we have a high schooler who's routinely with us we're law students and we still have discussions about them and they're worth reading and, and the best best writing whether it's a law review or a biology journal or whatever is accessible i think to everyone joanne you had an opinion about this article compared to some of the other ones we wrote there have been several that have been iffy or just i have not enjoyed very much um i have no interest and fishing or anything but i absolutely adored this article it really made me laugh i really had a great time reading it and all of its 56 pages it was wonderful i'm glad you enjoyed it. i mean I'll, I'll, I'll confess i haven't been fishing in quite a while um when i was younger when i lived in iowa and sometimes i go you know back back and do more outdoorsy stuff sometimes in undergrad i i had the opportunity to do it a few times I, I guess I certainly fish more often when I was, you know, a child. But since I started practicing law, for instance, I, I'm not sure if I've fished since then. And I certainly haven't fished uh, using uh, the unconventional methods that, uh, not just shooting fish with guns, 
uh, but some of the other methods that are described in detail uh, throughout the article that I learned about uh, as I was writing the article. Fishing with explosives, with spears, with um, electricity, uh, all sorts of interesting ways that people use to catch fish. I think my favorite is sling bows. I learned what those are. Uh, these crossbow, harpoon, slingshot hybrids, uh, all sorts of interesting ways people do it. Uh, I haven't done it, but um, it was great learning about it, and I tried to present it in a way uh, that would be approachable for people who don't have much legal experience and perhaps don't have much fishing experience as well. I was very entranced by the sheer amount of uh, chemicals and drugs that were mentioned in the laws and everything, because there was a lot of, you can't use chemicals or drugs, like, don't drug the fish. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I mean, the, the reasons for those were a little bit more clear, or clearer, I think, than maybe some of the laws against shooting fish or other methods. I mean, you use chemicals, you use explosives, you use electricity, you get into situations where you're just sort of indiscriminately killing everything in the river. And with certain chemicals and, and things like that, you might end up poisoning the river uh, in a way that could become dangerous to fish and other organisms. I think there's several states that prohibit fish berries or Levant berries, and I think that those in high enough doses can be harmful or dangerous to people as well. Um, so yeah, uh, there's a lot of states that have noticed that and tried to take the, take the approach of getting rid of as many of those means as they can. Uh, I'll just caveat that. So electricity is a little bit different. Um, as a biologist, I did do a lot of electricity fishing because it's a good way of sampling and it is because it is indiscriminate it gets everything um, it causes them to be paralyzed they float to the surface you net them up um, but once the electricity electric turns off given a minute to three minutes they swim away they're fine <laughs> um, so that's also a good thing for when you're sampling a, a, a water body um, interestingly enough though the scientific electrofishing equipment you know a basic rig fifteen thousand dollars permits and stuff like that but you can buy a, a, a little thing about the size of a snuff can for 40 bucks hook it up to your boat battery and it is a perfectly serviceable dc electrofishing rig for catfish it's only legal in like louisiana and texas but um those exist and they're out there um it co cuts against the theory of of fish management and wildlife management in the united states where generally you're you're managing for uh, recreational purposes and the sportsman you know in the teddy roosevelt sense but some people out there really do need the fish to eat um you know especially in the the deep south and that's i think part of why you get into different regulatory approaches no absolutely and and I noticed that there were a lot of um, exceptions to the electricity rules, particularly when it came to state agencies and things like that for sampling. And there, I think that's another part of writing this article. And another reason to uh, perhaps not skip over the table is that you can get a sense of the variety of regulations. Alaska, I think as well, actually does have some more permissive uh, fish shooting allowances. Uh, in cases where you say landed a fish lawfully, then you can shoot it. And I think that's where we're getting into a situation where uh, you're catching perhaps larger fish. Uh, I think Hawaii may have a similar rule like that. So uh, when you're in a situation like that, where you're catching larger fish and you plan on uh, consuming them, then allowing uh, use the use of firearms in situations like that, in very limited situations like that, is definitely tied to that goal. So in the article, you lay out four ways of writing general fishing regulations. 
first there's the specific definition approach, which defines what is permitted. Then you've got the redundant approach, which defines what is and isn't permitted. Uh, then you also have the laundry list approach, which lists methods that are not permitted. And finally, the North Dakota approach. Is this varied approach the result of federalism or is it a good thing? I think, I mean, it's, I think it's almost certainly a result of federalism. Uh, you see this variety of regulation. As we were just discussing, you have different regulations in different states where there may be different reasons to fish or different types of fish that could be the subject of regulations. So in that sense, I think it is largely the result of federalism and the result of uh, different needs and demands in various states. As to whether it's a good thing, I think for the most part, yes. I think it's good because it allows for experimentation. Fish and what fishing is for is not the same in all 50 states and there needs to be some variety. Uh, the environment in different states as well and the types of fish that you have are also not the same. There needs to be a variety of methods permitted for those reasons as well. And you also have, uh, nevertheless, a coalescence, I think, around as far as drafting methods. Uh, the approach that is generally the best approach, which I just define in the article as sort of the specific definition approach, uh, defining what types of fishing is permitted, as opposed to say, the laundry list approach of sort of listing a bunch of things that you simply can't do. I think that the specific definition approach is more manageable from a drafting perspective. It's easier to follow because uh, the rules, I think, are a little bit more uh, clearer for people, uh, regular people who are trying to follow the law. And it's what a lot of states end up doing as a result of federalism and this experimentation. There are some downsides. Uh, you have some experiments gone wrong. You mentioned the North Dakota approach which, as I describe in the article, I, I looked into North Dakota's laws uh, quite a bit. Um, and I'm happy for, for um, you know, if, if I'm wrong about this, but I found that their laws appear to almost prohibit every sort of fishing, including fishing with a law or reel, just rod or reel, the way that they're drafted. They, the, the law is drafted in such a way that it says there's no killing, catching, destruction of fish, except as provided in this title. That title goes on to list very few permitted methods, some of which are fairly specific, such as uh, using a fish house or a dark house on ice when you're ice fishing. As I described in the article, though, there's an exception that allows the use of dip nets when a fish has been legally landed with a rod or with a hook and line. And I conclude that by implication, that means that a hook and line can be legally used to catch fish. But it's not clear. And I think that uh, the law could certainly be drafted uh, more clearly uh, so I wasn't reaching the conclusion that, hey, it might be illegal to fish in almost every way in North Dakota. Um, so in short, yes, I think it's a result of federalism. I think for the most part, it's a good thing. States are different. Fish are different. Environments are different. And in the end, a lot of states come around and have regulations that are manageable and that are fairly clear. So... Uh, for most states, the restrictions or implied restrictions on shooting fish have very little to do with environmental conservation. Should these restrictions have more to do with the preservation of the environment? I think, uh, I think environmental preservation is definitely a good reason to motivate law, rules and laws like this. I think it is a factor still in, um, in a lot of these rules. And even for the specific rules against shooting fish with firearms, there, I think, is an environmental consideration. Uh, but before I get to that, I'm not sure. Uh, I, I think that one of the main reasons why 
shooting fish with guns is not really motivated by environmental considerations is because there's a bigger consideration of just safety. Uh, you go on YouTube and you'll see these, if you, if you search for Asian carp gun on YouTube, for instance, uh, Asian carp are these fish that are an invasive species and they have a habit of flying out of the water when a motor comes past and they can, you know, hit people, injure people. Uh, and they crowd out local wildlife and local fish. You go on YouTube and you'll see people getting on boats with guns and just kind of going nuts, trying to shoot these fish from a gun, treat it almost as skeet shooting. And there was a lawmaker who actually introduced a bill, I believe this was in Illinois, I, I describe it in the article, which would specifically permit people to shoot Asian carp from moving speedboats with shotguns, I think, or a gun of some kind. The bill did not pass, fortunately, and that's a good thing because it's just dangerous uh, to go around shooting, especially fish that are airborne, um, when you're shooting uh, bullets into the air, shot into the air that may go anywhere, may hit people on other boats, may hit people on the shore. Now, I know there's a few very vocal advocates um, who have kept the Lake Champlain uh, exception alive, who will certainly point out, they pointed out in the past to other officials that Injuries for, you know, typical fish shooting practices are relatively low. Uh, but nevertheless, that's likely because the practice is relatively uncommon. And there are just dangers of shooting people. Even shooting fish in the water, if you hit it at a shallow enough angle, again, as I described in the article, can lead to the bullet ricocheting off the water. There's also videos on YouTube of people hitting targets after ricocheting bullets off of the water. So, uh, again, a lot of safety consideration. But... I think they overlap and are related to environmental considerations. I think the environment, environmental considerations are a factor to an extent in shooting fish, but I think in, to a larger extent to some of these other means of catching fish. Although I think as Tony pointed out, sportsmanship is also there. Um, but again, sportsmanship and environmentalism to an extent overlap as well. It's not sporting to use explosives or to use electricity in a situation where you're trying to catch, capture and kill the fish perhaps. Uh, where you may end up just sort of indiscriminately killing a bunch of fish at once. It also isn't really that good for the environment, especially if it's a uh, lake or a river that has uh, fish that may not be all that common. Um, and it's also why you see exceptions to these rules in cases where the fish are more invasive or viewed as pests. You'll have a lot of exceptions for carp, various species of carp, for example, which people generally view as a nuisance. So, in the end, I think environmental uh, regulations are a consideration. They're probably not one of the top considerations in all cases. And in those cases, perhaps legislature should give it some more thought in crafting their rules and keeping that in mind. Uh, but I do think that enough of these considerations overlap that you may end up getting environmentally friendly results, even if you have other goals in mind, like sportsmanship. Speaking of carp, I thought it was funny that um, in your footnotes, you mentioned that I think Illinois has a $100 bounty for black carp. And I just, that was so funny to me. A bounty for a fish could be rich. Absolutely. I mean, um, what, one thing I noticed, and I didn't, I wasn't really approaching the article or, or making a systematic effort to catalog uh, measures that people take to deal with invasive species. But you'll see from the rules that I have, you'll see from the exceptions to the rules that are mentioned throughout the article that uh, there are a lot of uh, rules that get a lot more permissive when it comes to fish that people see as a nuisance. And that's, I think, probably one of the more extreme examples where you're outright paying people 
to get rid of these fish, which in certain cases is probably a good thing to do. Some of these fish can be quite destructive and can have a huge impact. Uh, I know that the Asian carp, for instance, I think they're you know spreading up the rivers, through the rivers throughout the country, I think particularly in the Midwest. And it's a huge problem, uh, both for local wildlife and species, and also for people who are out on the water uh, who might end up getting hit by these things. So is this a, a good example of or this field, a good example of how those of us who may be drafting regulations in the future or uh, be involved in passing statutes or, or um, should be approaching the, the problem, um, we should you know, to take a specific definition approach, um, you know, if possible, and if not, you know, kind of move down the list in, in, in how to approach doing that regulatory work? Um, I think it's, it could be an interesting case study. Yeah. Um, it's an example of where you have different ways of, you, you have a goal, uh, say, of, you know, allowing people to take fish, uh, but also preserving sportsmanship and preserving the environment. Uh, there are certain things you might want to do. You might want to, in, the, in this case, prohibit certain means of taking fish. But there are several drafting ways you can go about doing that. And I think this article illustrates that, you know, trying to list everything you can't do uh, is an example, a general example of uh, drafting gone wrong. I think you've seen it. I, I think I may make the analogy in the article, but drugs could be an example of this as well, uh, particularly synthetic drugs. If you try banning drugs based on their chemical composition, uh, you can have a situation where someone may just develop a very similar but chemically distinct drug that doesn't fall under the statute. And so that laundry list approach, you know, be it fish or be it drugs, isn't the best idea. So I think there are some cases where the lessons from this article may apply. There's other cases where the sort of broader, you know, more specific approach may may not be as as, as good. I this This may not be the perfect analogy, but it was a few years ago I remember writing, I wrote about uh, police use of drones and uh, Fourth Amendment implications of that, and there were sort of there were several approaches to that where some laws allowed for the use of drones in this situation, that situation, or that situation. That I found to be actually a bit more of a preferable preferable approach than sort of simplistic quote unquote catch all laws that banned police use of drones uh, to the extent that they were inconsistent with the Fourth Amendment. And that ended up basically giving the government uh, carte blanche to use drones as they saw fit and putting the ball entirely in the hands of the courts, which may not be the best uh, area to regulate something as complex as drone use in a whole wide variety of situations. So I think while the fish article illustrates sort of an, an, an instance where simpler is better and can achieve uh, the desired result, I'm not sure if it's a universal lesson. Um, but I think it's something to keep in mind, especially if someone is interested in going into statutory drafting. I guess that's sort of the theme that I've looked into in my scholarship overall. And sort of you do these surveys and you can get an idea of common practices or uh, weird exceptions, uh, the North Dakotas of the world, and, and sort of see what's a good idea, what's not a good idea, and um, what sort of situations may call for a certain approach to drafting rules and regulations. Do you already have a future topic on deck that you're really excited to get to write about next? I do. Um, I have, um, I, 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 for a while, I was entertaining the idea of doing my own podcast. I'm not sure if that's going to happen possibly ever. But what, one thing I've always been interested in, I think, as I mentioned earlier on, is sort of just legal oddity uh, or trivia or strange things. That's something that 
drew me to the lowering the bar blog, why, uh, why I enjoy it so much. So, and it's something that I actually looked into in law school when I was in the library. Uh, one, one of my many ways of procrastinating would be to go into the law review section and you might be able to, uh, I, I, I don't know if um, anything is in person or if you're going to have that starting up anytime soon. But I would go into the law review section. I would find the old versions of the green bag, uh, this weird, quirky journal of law. It was revived, I think, in the 90s, late 90s or early 2000s as the green bag second edition or green bag 2D is the title of it now. And it's a fantastic journal. It's actually one of my life's goals to be publishing it someday. Um, but it was a revival of this journal that was published in the late 1800s and early 1900s, which had these very short, quirky articles on odd little topics, the use of dreams in evidence, trial by combat, all, all sorts of odd historic uh, relics and quirks in, in these early law journals. And they were, you would, you'd flip through them and you'd, you'd find these little nuggets and it was great. Uh, the current uh, green bag is a little bit more focused on a few more mainstream topics, but is also pretty focused on trivia, primarily those short, well-written, fun-to-read articles, which I think is fantastic and that the world can use more of that. But as far as specific topics go, there's a huge roundabout way of saying, yes, dreams and evidence, uh, as I alluded to, is actually something that I'm interested in, a comparison of historic instances where dreams were used as visions. Uh, which ultimately ended up solving crimes and sort of comparing that with the day where you have dreams being used or debated as to whether they can be used in situations where people claim to have been abused, but that there's a, dis a dispute over whether or not it really happened or whether it was a dream, whether people who are being interrogated who talk about dreams that they had that ultimately amount to confessions are admissible in court, things like that, um, and, and, and a variety of others. This is a very sort of initial topic that I'm exploring, but I think it could, could bear fruit. And then other topics, I have a pretty full draft underway for a trial by combat article, essentially uh, all instances of attempted trial by combat in quote unquote modern courts, which starts with, I think, the early 1800s and moves forward. And then other things, oh yeah, uh, litigation over pews in church. Uh, people would sue each other all the time over whether or not they could use a certain pew, whether they had a right to a pew. You had cases of people trying to adversely possess other people's pews and like sitting on each other's laps. Wild stuff. This was back in um, the ecclesiastical courts in England. Uh, it came over to uh, the United States. The law in England and the United States was very different, but you have a lot of old East Coast centered uh, cases, New York, Massachusetts, things like that, of people suing each other over whether they could use pews in church, had property rights in pews and things like that which I think is a fun topic that, that might, might be worthy of a, a fun exploration one of these days. Okay, and with that, we're about out of time. Thanks again to Michael Smith and our panel, uh, Courtney, Joanne, and Seth. Reminder, you can find a link to the article discussed by going to lawreviewsquared.com and looking at the episode notes. Let us know what topics you'd like us to adversely possess by twittering suggestions to at Squared Law. Please like, follow, subscribe, or give a rating wherever you found this podcast. If you're a law student and would like to be on a panel, feel free to get in touch. Audio post-processing by Mohammed Salim. Podcast adjourned.